0: Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Sejal Hathi, a physician, public health advocate, and serial entrepreneur who has dedicated her career to serving vulnerable communities in the United States and globally. With a special attention to women and girls. Currently, she serves as a primary care resident at the Massachusetts General Hospital and clinical fellow at Harvard Medical School. In her early career, Dr. Hathi founded two nonprofit organizations, Girls Helping Girls and Girl Tank, that has mobilized over 30,000 young women to create sustainable social change in over 100 countries. Dr. Hathi has spoken about women's rights and empowerment at TED Women, TEDxTeen, and United Nations. More recently, she served as a health policy advisor to Mayor Pete Buttigieg and is the host of Civic RX, a podcast that features leaders in government, public health, culture, and technology who are shaping our collective response to the COVID-19 pandemic. For her tremendous achievements, Dr. Hathi has won several national awards from Newsweek, Forbes Magazine, the National Jefferson Awards for Public Service, and the Paul and Daisy Soros Foundation. Dr. Hathi received her md MBA from Stanford and her undergraduate degree from Yale and serves on the boards of India Diaspora and the arena. Dr. Hathi, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful to have you here with us and share your journey as a leader who's consistently dedicated herself to empowering women and girls to create social change and we as Thea really share this mission and are so glad to join you in your movement. You've co-founded two organizations, Girls Helping Girls as well as Girl Tank uh, that have changed the lives of so many young women. Could you share with us what inspired you to, to start these organizations? Absolutely. Let me first say
1: congratulations to all of you on this call for embarking on this project and fostering a platform and a community to inspire female innovators, even as you complete your studies, which I know from my own experience at Yale and a medical school more broadly is no easy feat. So congratulations and and thank you for having me. I was moved to start these two organizations early in my career when I was a teenager, actually at the age of 15. That's when I first started Girls Helping Girls. And that specific organization was born of a series of traumatic experiences that I had with my own health. So I am less reserved, I should say, in sharing this experience now than I was years ago. But I, as a teenager, struggled uh, pretty significantly with anorexia and was in fact treated at stanford hospital where i chose unsurprisingly to return for my own medical school training and during the course of struggling with this disease and ultimately learning to live and hopefully overcome this i realized that thousands of us and particularly thousands of young women were struggling with insecurity, self-doubt, imposter syndrome, the conviction that, that we were not good enough, beautiful enough, perfect enough, and because they could not recognize or articulate their own value, their own intrinsic value. And I wanted to foster a community that would open their eyes to that value. Um, and would partner them with other, build community with other young women who could affirm that collective value. And I I wanted that because I, in my own struggles, really only made it through with the support of other women like myself, um, who had been through this, who allowed me to pull myself from that abyss and recognize that I'm larger than this and that I could do more than this, that I had real agency. And I wanted to kind of gift that. And however naive, perhaps, or arrogant that sounds, I wanted to give that same sense of agency and camaraderie to other women in the way that it had been so kindly given to me. And there was born this idea of simply girls helping girls, girls reaching out across divides to help one another recognize their intrinsic value and together create a more tolerant and more inclusive and more equitable world. And in, in the course of building that organization, I encountered numerous women around the world who had brilliant ideas, some of which were incubated in our own programs to make their communities better. But for Lack of resources for lack of institutional support and cultural credibility were unable to take those to scale. And so I partnered with a woman, many years my senior, uh, to launch Girl Tank to source, connect, and train and finance aspiring and fledgling female entrepreneurs around the world who needed that additional support to carry their ventures to fruition. And that's how both of those organizations came about. And I continued to grow them throughout my teenage years and in my 20s.
0: That's amazing to hear. Thank you for sharing that compelling story regarding your own motivations to start these organizations. Very inspiring. What do you think made your efforts successful? Um, you know, as any young person starting at 15, you know, getting that credibility as a leader is a very huge feat. What do you think enabled you to be a successful social entrepreneur at such a young age? It's a really good question.
1: I think that it is, as always, a curious mix of serendipity, uh, perhaps naivete, and uh, institutional support from, frankly, gatekeepers of power. So to delve a little bit into each of those three, first, I would say that I launched Girls Helping Girls incidentally, just as the Nike Foundation was engendering the Girl Effect Initiative, which funneled huge sums of money and resources into the thesis that empowering girls could empower emerging economies. And so there's a lot of attention and interest in this newly sexy idea of female empowerment, specifically among young women. At the same time, Nick Kristoff was publishing his book in which we feature Half the Sky. And so he published that just months after, within months, I should say, of, of our founding Girls Helping Girls, and that, too, corralled a ton of resources, attention, and credibility uh, on this issue. So we were, to some degree, simply and humbly in the right place at the right time, and I think, accordingly, were well-positioned to solicit and secure funding media attention and partnerships that are foundational to any emerging enterprise's success. Beyond that, I should say, as this was my first venture, as I was a young woman, otherwise unacquainted with the tribulations and frustrations of starting a large, let alone global organization, I didn't realize how difficult it would be. It seemed to me that the world was my oyster and I could do anything, uh, including conquer this disease that I set my mind to. And so when I realized that there was a problem here and that I could possibly do something about it, it didn't enter my mind that it could be prohibitively difficult to accomplish. I just figured I needed to work hard at it and then it would happen as I saw it or as I sought it to happen. And so I think that. There, that element of naivete always helps. I, I think I was certainly more perhaps blindly confident in my ability to make this work than I would be as I approach things now. And I think that element of every, of hubris, um, I wouldn't call myself egoistic, but I think that every entrepreneur needs an element, perhaps a better term for it is this optimism, severe optimism in their own ability to bring about their dreams. I think you need that in order to attract people to your cause and and continue grinding away when the going gets really tough, which it inevitably does. And so that, that naivete, that optimism, that uninformed conviction in my ability to do all things really helped me. And then finally I had a lot of support from gatekeepers of power. So the Nike foundation was a huge support members of the media were a huge support in raising awareness. I was a young fellow with the Ashoka Foundation, which coined the term social entrepreneurship. And they really helped me with the nuts and bolts of starting an organization. With Girl Tank, I was selected as an inaugural Startup Chile Fellow. And so that was a program started by the Chilean government to attract foreign entrepreneurs to their country. In exchange for money and other resources, those entrepreneurs had to agree to headquarter those companies in Chile for a extended period of time. I was a beneficiary of that program, so there are a lot of other institutional resources that I tapped
0: into, and that definitely uh, helped considerably. I think there's tremendous value to having this. I I almost call it like this childlike approach to innovation and and not really thinking about the barriers. Instead, offering up ideas and different ways of rethinking uh, different approaches to healthcare problems and really bringing that fresh pair of eyes. Of course, you have to build connections with the more established key opinion leaders, physicians even as you know, a 15-year-old or 20-year-old in my case. But what would you advise young women who are, similarly trying to start a movement or a company within healthcare, what is the recipe for for their success in doing something that sort of aligns with Girls Helping Girls or Thea or say a digital health startup, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so I am firstly really excited to see an increasing number of young women of whatever age express interest in entrepreneurship and in marrying, in all of our cases, a a penchant for science and a professional interest in medicine with a creative flair. And so groups like this are exactly what we need to see more of. And I will say that There was a lot of support for that type of endeavor at the medical school I attended, namely Stanford University, which carries, of course, a a long history and notoriety for really almost incubating entrepreneurs. And that was no different at the medical school. And so women and men, students there who were even tepidly interested at trying their hand at this field, at, at starting a new company, were given funding courses, mentor, and time to do that. And I think that that's you know, really key. All of you here are in school in some form and you know i was in school when i started my organizations and that level of support from the educational establishment is critical if you're going to be starting a new venture be it nonprofit or for profit or somewhere in between and and so i think that like making sure that you seek out those institutions of learning that will understand and actively abet your entrepreneurialism is is important otherwise i think that the flip side of that is I also see a lot of people who are just starting companies for the sake of starting companies. And it is to some degree, a bogish thing to do. And I would really argue that you should really have a clear theory of change and really make sure that you understand the problem that you're seeking to solve and that you're bringing to it a unique value proposition. Like, do you have a tenable reason to argue that you are the best equipped and positioned to address this problem? Like, really making sure you understand the field. Because there are a lot of other otherwise startups in the healthcare space that are not started by physicians or medical students, people who are already trained in that field and that just don't do well there. They, they implode. I uh, support a, a venture firm in evaluating a lot of these healthcare pitches and it's just, it's pretty mind blowing how many of these early stage companies don't understand the space that they're entering. And so I, I would just really argue, I think that all of you on this call and I'm sure many of your listeners have an inherent advantage there because you're training in this space, but making sure you really understand the problem you're seeking to, solve and that you attend a school that is open to that and will actively support you in that. And then finally, not being afraid to take time outside of school to step away and commit. Because at the end of the day, you know, I... I think I was only successful with Girl Tank and you know, my other organizations because I did them in partnership with other people. And you think you really need to have someone who is willing to commit to this full time, who can step out of their daily life and give everything to this, because that's what any new venture needs. And you, you all here are probably discovering that a little bit. And that's why there's a group of you who are all working on this. And so
0: that teamwork is, is key. One key question that I had was, what is your view on the best leader? You know, in running two organizations, having a team, starting a movement effectively with thousands of young women and men, what is your general approach to being an effective leader? I would say
1: that's a continually evolving question and evolving answer, but I think the best leaders are those who are able to inspire the best in their followers and in, in their teammates. Well, able to call out their best values, and I think that in order to do that, you have to have a really, again, authentic theory of change. You have to be empowering of other people. You have to set and embody a set of values that unite your work and your team, and you, that, that you and your team would live by. I think that you also just have to be really authentic and own up to your mistakes when you make them. Be transparent about what you're working on, what you're finding difficult. And you have to be a good communicator because at the end of the day, people need to feel as if they're part of a broader movement and as if they have a real purpose, a larger purpose in belonging to and driving that movement forward. And you need to be able to communicate what that overarching mission and vision are. And so I think it's a mix of things, authenticity. Married with the right amount of vulnerability, powerful communication skills, um, inclusive and affiliative leadership, so being able to empower others to inhabit their their greatest potential, and just having a really clear understanding of where you're going with this.
0: Agreed. I raised that point because that's been something that our team's been really focused on, and personally as well, I'm sure you're aware of the book Multipliers, which sort of is a, a unique take on leadership and this idea of inspiring others to fulfill their greatest potential and you know leveraging others' strengths. I see a lot of those themes in your response. So that's very amazing and, and great to hear. Taking it to the next level of advocating on a more policy basis, has been really interesting to follow. We learned that you had worked for mayor, now future secretary of transportation, Pete Buttigieg. We'd love to hear about how you broadly, as now a primary care resident physician, have leveraged your role in engaging in more policy and high-level efforts. I absolutely love
1: Pete Buttigieg. I think he is a generational political talent, and his entire campaign was a testament to that values-driven, evidence-based policymaker that he promises to be. So I'm very excited that he's been named Secretary of Transportation and have full faith that he will run again for higher office at, at some future point in his career. I recognized during the course of my training that, again, it wasn't enough to be a clinician. And support patients one-on-one. There were far greater forces stretching back generations that were rendering my patients vulnerable and unhealthy. And I wanted to play a role in addressing, again, the decades of deliberate policy choices that reinforced I think structural racism and a healthcare system predicated on profit, both of which made it much harder for individual, even well-meaning clinicians to do their job. And I felt that becoming involved in policy, in legislative advocacy, in grassroots activism around these broader structural forces, around designing a better healthcare system was a potentially powerful route to addressing those upstream forces. And I became involved in those spaces in a number of ways. I, early in my medical career, was appointed by then-UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon as the youngest of nine members on his Independent Advisory Commission for Women's and Children's Health. And in that role, I was charged with evaluating the commitments and the progress made by various member nations toward Millennium Development Goals 4 and 5, focusing on women's health and under 5 mortality. And so I became a lot involved in like international policy circles in that way in the wake of the 2016 presidential election when President Trump was elected to office. I became engaged in a fight to protect the ACA and as well to mobilize health professional students broadly to protect our, our patients' right to care. And so I did a lot of legislative advocacy and grassroots activism on that front. And then when the 2020 campaign came around, I felt that I could similarly play a role in articulating and shaping the policy choices from the public option, which Pete endorsed, to Medicare for All, to ending surprise billing, to erecting a universal paid leave policy. There are a lot of things to tackling our mental health and addiction crisis that I felt had languished or regressed during the Trump years. And I wanted to be a part of the conversation around how we make those fixes. And so, I joined the PEAK campaign just as it was getting off the ground, so shortly after he announced his campaign, and that was an amazing experience, being able to work with people who are all brilliant in their field, professors and attendings in some cases former elected officials, former policy wonks in the Obama administration, and just really put our heads together and figure out, well, how can we make the biggest change possible? What really are the policies that need to take place in order to ultimately, I guess, in Joe Biden's Perlance, build back better? And I mean, those were grueling months, because as you know, I was in the middle of residency and had a full-time job already. But those were probably among my favorite months of residency for the opportunity to really learn with and and um create with amazing people for an amazing candidate who really believes strongly in our vision and in our expertise. And so I I felt very grateful to have been able to do that and when Joe Biden became the candidate to be able to help in a smaller way with some of his health related policy formation as well. So it's been a really special experience and I'm excited for the people that he's the president elect has chosen thus far to carry that mantle forward. Yeah,
0: I think it's just super important for medical students who are listening in to recognize the ability to leverage, you know, your status as a medical student and future resident attending whatever it may be to impact change, but you know, you did allude to the fact that you were a full-time resident working on, you know, presidential campaigns. How do you view time management? You know, we all have interests. And of course, you know, we need to be trained as great physicians, but what would your, you know, advice be to someone who's, you know, juggling many things? And of course, you know, we have long-term visions of, you know, whether we want to combine medicine, entrepreneurship, healthcare policy, et cetera. But, It's very difficult. There's only 24 hours in a day. So what's your general approach to time management and also, you know, enjoying life at the same time? Of course, work is enjoyment for for many of us. But how do you view that? Yeah, I would say it's incredibly hard. And
1: I don't know necessarily that I have all the answers. I think that I have practices, I suppose, that I've accumulated over the years. Uh, So bullet journals and regular routines uh, that I have clung to. I think I make sure that I get some exercise and mindfulness minutes every single day to keep me motivated and fresh. But it's, I mean, it's difficult. And there are compromises you make. There are sacrifices you make. There were many nights when I didn't get the sleep that I otherwise would have, that I wasn't socializing necessarily and building community, which is also critically important among my residency, but was instead doing this work. So it really comes down to prioritization. Like you, I, You can't not do it all and do it all well. You have to ruthlessly prioritize. And that means letting some things consciously fall by the wayside. I think that time management obviously has a role to play here, but even more so is figuring out what you want from life and then building your schedule around that.
0: Another question or uh, discussion that we wanted to have with you, Dr. Hathi, was your work amidst uh, coronavirus, and the podcast that you started, I think in June of this year. We'd love to hear about what inspired you to start Civic RX and uh, your decision to pursue this podcast in conjunction with your work as a, a resident and, and you know, seeing these sick patients at Mass General.
1: Yeah, so I was motivated to start Civic Rx in the spring of this past uh, year because I recognized that there were a lot of conversations swirling around the country about how to best respond to this pandemic, what the implications would be for an ailing healthcare system, what protections should be erected for essential workers, how to prop up in, in some cases in uh, direct contention with public health, the, the economy. And I felt that my colleagues in medicine had a lot to contribute to and, and learn from those conversations. And yet there wasn't enough discussion happening on, con- on, on campus around these larger Issues And so I started a fireside chat series, um, the Mass General Brigham, which is the consortium of hospitals that comprise Massachusetts General Hospital and Newton Wellesley Hospital and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I invited a series of speakers who were at the forefront of articulating and molding the tactical, the moral, and the social questions that would shape how we move forward during this pandemic. And I invited them to come talk to us and to do so in a fireside chat setting that fostered an intimate conversation. And these fireside chats were so successful and um, productive that... On the recommendation of a couple of those speakers who attended, I decided to translate them into a podcast for broader public consumption. And so Civic RX was born as a project and a podcast to ignite, to share, and to amplify conversations about how we build a more wholesome and more equitable society in the wake of COVID 19. So every conversation features an amazing public leader, so a government official, an entrepreneur, a um, public intellectual, or other leader whose work and ideas are informing the steps we take. And it's been a real privilege to be able to talk with folks like the incoming Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, to Australia's first female prime minister, Julia Gillard, uh, to mental health policy wonks and our millennial mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs, just about the work that they're doing and about the journey that has brought them to that work. And again, it's a lot of drudgery too, on, on my side, amid a residency that is not always forgiving or enabling of additional pursuits. So it's been, it's been hard, but rewarding nonetheless.
0: Yeah, I've really enjoyed hearing many of those episodes and, you know, just having the perspectives of how coronavirus is changing so many aspects of our, you know, life from, you know, working remotely, from the rise of telemedicine to the restructuring of of schooling and learning. I mean, this has just been amazing to see how such a, of course, horrible virus has changed and I think will continue to change the way we view life and you know, interact with people. What do you think are the changes that have occurred throughout this year that are here to stay within our society? Well, one of the
1: silver linings, there's always a silver lining of this pandemic is it's exposed how fragile our broader social compact has become. And not only in healthcare, though the brokenness of that system has been splayed open for all to see, but also of our social security, of our food security, of our strained racial relations, of our national trust in government and of our institutional stability. I think so much of what we prided ourselves on as Americans, a robust democracy, a nonpareil economy, like so many of those things have now their luster, or at least the flaws have better come to light. And I think that I'm grateful, therefore, for the conversation that those awakenings have spurred about what we can do to once again, shape an America that lives up to our ideals and um, better hues to our founding values. And So for igniting that conversation, for maybe making the country more open to previously radical positions, I I think the pandemic has done a lot. Specifically within healthcare, I think that the telemedicine revolution, so the wave of regulations that have been lifted and relaxed, for instance, by both Congress and by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, have been tremendous and have really accelerated a transition that would have taken probably many more years without the pandemic. So I'm hopeful for the sake of innovation in healthcare, for access to healthcare in rural America, for mental health care gains. I'm really hopeful that some of these gains that we've seen at both the federal and state levels in telehealth will be sustained post pandemic. And I think that they're here to answer your question more pointedly to stay. So we will have to see, but I do believe that the COVID-19 pandemic has just really just, it's changed the conversation in- entirely. And hopefully also it's exhumed public health from otherwise the decades of neglect and underinvestment that it had been buried under. I think we're going to see a lot more interest in public health, which, which, which may be relevant to you actually, as you probably saw the unprecedented numbers of medical school applications, Fauci effect. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a lot more public interest in, attention to, and investment in public health and in science. And I, I am hopeful that for crises like climate change, change, for instance, for which I think something like COVID-19 can be seen perhaps as a dress rehearsal, because you're really going to have to... It's all about carbon emissions are invisible just as the COVID-19 virus is invisible. And I think in order to gain traction against that invisible enemy, you need to believe in experts, even as those experts' guidance changes. You need to be able to restore trust in American credibility to cement um, international collaboration on reducing carbon emissions. You need to have... Of a whole of government approach. And so I am hopeful that a lot of these systems that have come under pressure will be reformed, that we will return to evidence based and science driven policy, and that future such crises, whether in health or across other domains, will be therefore much easier uh, to tackle.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think with COVID uncovering these flaws within our nation and within the healthcare system specifically, there's a great opportunity for entrepreneurship. And I think. For the listeners of our podcast, you know, it's just an area that's so ripe for innovation. And I think now's the time to start your organization. Of course, you need to make sure you're well qualified for the pursuit and have something of of value and of difference. But I think now is the time. There's so many companies that have sprung up from difficult times like these. Sort of, you know, getting to the end of our conversation, I wanted to thank you again, Dr. Hathi, for your time. But what is a key piece of advice or maybe a quote that you'd like to leave our listeners with, um, given our conversation today and, and your motivation as a entrepreneur and physician?
1: I would say that, and this is no secret to any of you, the biggest accomplishments come from taking those baby steps every day. And so make that commitment. And if you want to write a book, write a page every day. If you want to start a company, work on it for 20 minutes, at least initially every day. Like Make that commitment to yourself. Make that daily investment in yourself. And over time, it will pay dividends.
0: Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at theahealthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.